Hello and welcome to Recap, Per Capita's research and policy podcast where we examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. I'm your host, Emma Dawson, Executive Director of Per Capita, and this week I'm joined by Shirley Jackson from our Centre for New Industry, Matt Lloyd-Cape from our Centre for Equitable Housing, and Senior Economist Margaret McKenzie, who's just got back from the lock-up in Canberra. And that's why we're here today. We're not actually talking about our own work for once. We're going to unpack the 2023 federal budget. This is a bit of a post-mortem from your friends at Per Capita. Hi, everyone. Good to be here. Hi, Anna. Hey, Anna. G'day. <laughs> let's start, Mark. Give, let's give our listeners a bit of an insight to what budget lockups actually like. I'm sure they've all heard the term lockup and thought it's a process of people being chained to their desks while they pour over <laughs> papers. Is that well, I have to say, um, to be absolutely honest, it's always pretty intense, and it was a bit like that in the past. Mm. Um, but we actually had ideal and very pleasant um, circumstances this year um, and lovely food mm. for anyone who <laughs> hasn't been at it. So, so we had a lovely um, time and we had enough space to work in and so on and it was in Parliament House mm. um, and there was a wide range of stakeholders there and, and we were very, very closely scrutinised to make sure that there was no chance that we could digitally leak mm. anything. Mm. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, per capita is very happy to be back in the lockup over the last year or so. We were kicked out under the Morrison <laughs> government, although if you're, from what you're telling me, it might not have been such a pleasant experience anyway. So no, maybe. I'd say that was a lucky break, Emma. <laughs> 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 you well, said that they used to keep you in the basement, is that right? <laughs> uh, well, we, w one of them was in the basement at the Treasury, I think, one mm. year. Mm. They've sort of shifted it around quite a bit. Mm. So of course, um, Margaret's come to per capita from the ACTU, so you're a budget veteran. Well, a budget veteran, but in fact, every budget is different. Mm. It was particularly mm. different this year, so that made it a challenge to interpret quickly, Yes, I have to say. It's much easier to interpret pork barrelling, isn't it, than actual investment? <laughs> 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 well, <laughs> ew. <laughs> I'm allowed to do that. Um, look, let's get, a, let's get into it, because it was the first uh, significant full-year federal Labor government we've seen in a long, long time uh, budget, that we've seen in a long, long time. Um, and while there are mixed reactions to it today, my personal view is that Treasurer Jim Chalmers and his team have done a pretty good job of uh, addressing some fairly urgent uh, pressures on households and small businesses because of inflation and the cost of living crisis, as they like to call it when we're all getting squeezed, um, at, while at the same time not adding to that inflation. So obviously a lot of the focus has been on those immediate spending measures that will provide relief to households. But at the same time, they've still managed to uh, do a bit of a nation building in there as well, haven't they, Cheryl? Absolutely. Like, thinking about it from an industry perspective, Perspective, and obviously uh, us at the Centre for New Industry is what we're very concerned about. I mean, this is a huge budget. Like, we've, we already knew that we, there was going to be the $15 billion National Reconstruction Fund, which has targeted investment in a range of priority areas that are, go a long way to diversifying our economic base and making our economy better able to weather the storms um, of an uncertain economic future. 
But on top of that, we've had billions of dollars announced in the renewable space specifically. And like chief amongst that is what I would argue is an absolutely a nation building project, which is the National Net Zero Authority, something we've been campaigning on for a long time. I think absolutely. we were first talking about it about five years ago. Yeah. Um, not only us, people like um, Friend of Per Capita, Professor Ross Garno, our friends in the union movement have been have been pushing for this um, for a long time as well. So Yeah, but it was a, a big part of our reconstruction agenda, wasn't absolutely, it? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, like, so I'm... I'm very, very happy as someone who's been trying to advocate for that sort of mission-oriented approach to industrial development as advocated for by um, Professor Mariana Mazzucato, um, that we've had a government that's really listening in this space. We've had a number of really good conversations, but I'm really, really happy to see these big picture, big ticket items get announced in this budget. Yeah, and, and a lot alongside that, a lot of um, support for reducing energy bills, um, for providing energy relief to households, price caps in the gas and electricity market. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And oh. like, it, it's that sort of thing that makes me really excited about this budget because we're seeing a twofold approach to this economic management. We're seeing the big structural reforms that we know will have long-term benefits. So trying to increase our supply of renewable energies through, you know, $4 billion in specifically for renewables over the next term to transform us into a renewable energy superpower. We're seeing this management of the um, shift away from fossil fuel regions so that we're making sure that there are going to be jobs for people in the new economy and that there's going to be a skilled pipeline of work going into these critical new technologies. But at the same time, we're providing those short-term, short to medium-term stopgaps that will ease people's cost of living. So we're seeing some really, really good... Um, uh, rebates or uh, incentives, about $500 for most people who are on concession cards, whether they're pensioners or... Um, and $650 uh, for small businesses. That's right, $650 for small businesses, which is, you know, not, not at all a, a small sum and it'll, it'll be a huge uh, impact for some of those, you know, small businesses that have been struggling over the last couple of years. Um, and we've also seen a lot of really interesting reforms for sort of the, the middle of the market, like people who might be looking to get induction cookers, people who are looking to get reverse cycle and try and get their energy efficiency rating up in their homes. We've seen some target investments for mm -hmm. that. So it's a really good, like wide ranging approach to energy that I really love to see. Yeah, and I think particularly important is the the effort to, to actually bring those bills down uh, at the source and, and ensure that by doing so it's not the same as a kind of cash handout to people That's which right. is this much is more stop, inflationary wouldn't stop it? turn gap it's yeah. also been quite clever because while it's actually try, um, seeks to manage the bills for consumers it hasn't given any particular encouragement towards um Renew, uh, non-renewable energy mm. production yeah. and that's yeah. quite a clever balancing act. Yeah, Absolutely. it is. And there's a lot of clever balancing acts in this budget. Um, while we're talking about the energy package, Matt, there's a, a package for social housing energy upgrades or uh, renewable uh, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah so within the um, broader 1.6 billion energy saving plan, there's um, 300 million that is designated towards upgrading um, social, uh, social housing. Um, and that's things like double glazing and insulation and solar panels. Um, the idea being that you know the, the uh, energy costs of people in social housing, they're the most you know people in the lowest incomes in the country. If you can bring their um, their energy costs down, then that's that's a significant impact there. Mm. And you know we were sort of playing around with some numbers earlier on. I think it's probably going to um, lead to we've got 110,000 homes under the overall bill. And for social housing, I think it's probably going to be in the region of thirty to 40,000 
homes that will be upgraded under this scheme as well. Yeah, so not insignificant and, and providing not just um, uh, you know, better infrastructure and, and, and upgrades for that public housing and social housing stock, but a reduction in long-term bills for social housing tenants as well. Yeah, and that's the thing, yeah, something like double glazing, you know, mm. you put it in once and it lasts for indefinitely, you know, and um, it's something that I, as a, as a migrant to Australia, <laughs> I'm always like, oh my God, where's the double glazing? I know, it's, it's everywhere um, in England, right? It's been, the, it's been the law for decades. It has. Um, so anyway, it's nice to see that coming through here. It is indeed. Um, and we'll, we'll get on to some of those other um, in, uh, cost of living measures in a moment, because that's obviously the most um, detailed part of the budget in many ways, and, and some of, amongst the most contentious. Um, but there was a bit of a surprise announcement last night that I don't think any of the leaks had seen coming, which was the tripling of the bulk billing incentive yeah. for GPs. Indeed. Uh, Margaret, was that something you had expected to see, or was it a surprise when you found it in the budget papers? No, uh, it was a surprise. Uh, there weren't any prior announcements of no, that, were they? Uh, uh, um, um, and it will actually present a relief to quite a significant proportion of the population. Um, that was obviously an area, area that was crying out, and that will be a very popular move. Mm, yeah, I think it's 11.6 so it, million households. That's right, 11.6 yeah. million um, uh, eligible um, recipients, recipients for that, and it's, right. it's targeted at... Uh, concession card holders, children, all children under 16, which I think is really important. Um, and combined with the changes to prescriptions that mean that you can now uh, get two months supply, uh, they have stared down the pharmacy lobby on that one. That's mm. going to be a significant saving for households. The the um, yep. sort of creeping attacks on, on Medicare, I'm mean, sure this still isn't universally applied and I think that's something we need to get to. But um, the ability to reduce those, those healthcare costs and take pressure off our hospital system by getting people back into their GP is yeah. actually a pretty significant change. Yeah? And that kind of feeds into the impact on, on other areas like aged care. Yeah. And so on too. Mm. If that actually improves conditions under which aged care and so on can be delivered and improves health outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a very positive thing. It is, and that's that that brings me to the thing in the budget that I'm I'm thrilled about. Well there are a few things I'm thrilled about. But the eleven point six billion dollar commitment for a fifteen percent pay rise for aged care workers yeah, from the first yeah. of July. Mm long, Absolutely. long overdue. Yeah, These are some of the lowest pay workers in our economy. 90% of them are women. Uh, half of them are women from migrant, refugee and non-English speaking backgrounds. They do really, really important work. I've talked about this before. I was an aged care worker in my uh, early 20s while I was at uni and, short and, and afterwards. It is demanding work, it's rewarding work, but it's demanding work physically and emotionally. There is nothing unskilled about it. Um, and they're actually providing a service that provides dignity and support to all of us. Uh, hopefully we won't all need residential aged care, but at some point, if we're lucky enough to live long enough, we'll need care from someone. Uh, so it's a really great, I think, labour initiative that builds on the uh, pay rise that was given to community um, uh, social, the SACS award back under the Gillard government. Um, and I, I think it, it bodes well for a future of investment in the care economy. And that would include aged care workers in the home too, mm. I imagine. So uh, Initially, I think it's residential aged care, oh. um, but there will be packages around the My uh, Home Care package right. down the track right. as well. Yeah. 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 But that's really, it's the residential aged care sector where we're having so much trouble att attracting staff. Uh, so this will be um, 
a really good outcome for those very important key workers. That's right. And I'm really interested to see that there's also some support at the other end of the age spectrum and a really interesting investment in childcare. Mm. So in particularly in the skills space, they've invested $72.4 million to support more childcare workers going and getting their bachelor's degrees and getting their master's degrees as well. So we're really looking to up the level of um, qualification and care, mm. which will also have knock-on effects with wages when people start getting more highly skilled it becomes very hard to keep paying them the minimum wage when they've got a bachelor's when they've got a master's because these are educators right? that's right and they're already doing the hard yards and sometimes you know it can be really frustrating when we talk in the skills space to say that oh maybe people should go on and do university degrees when they're already skilled people that are taking care of our children Mm -hmm. but trying to ensure some of those benchmarkings is always you know like a good regulatory change to try and make sure that those workers are valued and paid the appropriate and of, and of course, if people have pointed out this, this likely means that down the track there'll be a similar call on the government to fund a pay rise for early childhood workers. Yeah, yeah. And that's no bad thing. Uh, these are the jobs we should be investing in. They make a meaningful difference, not just to the people working in the system, but to the recipients of care, to their families, to the future of children, to our social cohesion and to our well-being. And if we've got a government that does care about measuring what matters, uh, this is a very, very good indication that they're going to back it up. So Absolutely. good news there. Let's get on to some of these other cost of living uh, measures, as, this, as they've been called. Um, there's obviously a lot of debate back and forth about this. Uh, the opposition is saying that the increase in income support payments is inflationary. The Greens are very angry that it doesn't go nearly far enough. Uh, I, as I have said all along, um, did not envy Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher on this front. Um, But what they have come up with is a pretty tightly targeted package of support. The first thing I'm going to celebrate, um, and I'm going to call out Therese Edwards from the National Council of Single Mothers and Their Children, uh, Dr Anne Summers, who's done a lot of work on women fleeing family violence and, and linked that to poverty and homelessness. Uh, and of course, Sam Moston and the and the team that was on the Women's Economic uh, Security Committee, uh, which is the reinstatement of the single parenting payment uh, from yeah, yeah. when your youngest child turns eight to 14. And um, forgive me if I get a bit emotional about this. When I was in the parliament, when that decision was, t- I was an advisor in the government when the decision uh, to end the grandfathering of that policy, which was originally introduced by Howard, um, was passed by the Gillard government in 2012 and, and, and pushed tens of thousands of single parents, mainly mothers, yeah. uh, onto JobSeeker. It was a dark day for the government and it is a wonderful thing uh, that that has been reversed. Raising young children is work. Um, you cannot leave a child aged eight at home alone while you go to work or while you try to find work or while you try to retrain to get That's right. work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this support is really meaningful. It's about another $176 a fortnight for That's single right. parents, about 85% of whom are mothers. Uh, it will allow them to, combined with uh, Commonwealth rent assistance increases, which for families is up to $30 a fortnight as well, uh, combined with those changes to early childhood education and care and the increase of the rebate there, um, will, I think, allow a lot of single parents to start to rebuild their lives. And the other thing, of course, they've done is cancel the very punitive Parents Next program. And shout out to May Lamb on our team who put a fantastic submission into that process and, and it was quite influential on uh, the government there, but also to activists like Ella Buckland and others who made that happen. Um, I'm I'm waffling on this one, but it's a really gratifying change. And in addition, there's also um, the the gender 
implications, mm. not just for single parents who, of course, are 90% women. Mm. Um, it is also for other parents too. So the changes to paid parental leave provisions, yes. coupled with the childcare yeah, improvements, yeah. Mm -hmm. will provide a fantastic incentive to Australian fathers and other parents who mm. otherwise the incentives have worked against being engaged. Mm. So this will give them a chance to really um, step up to the plate. Absolutely. As, as someone who, when my daughter was born, mm -hmm. um, I was still working in warehousing. I was working in a minimum wage job and I was entitled to two weeks where I was allowed to be at home with my daughter before I was, I was expected to. I know, it, And that's just an absolute... It's a it was a policy failure, you know, like not allowing fathers to be more involved. And like there are obviously cultural conversations that need to happen generation to generation. You know, mm. Matt, Matt and I, both of our kids are at the same school. So we talk about fatherhood quite a bit. <laughs> uh, they're in the same class at the same school, no less. So we, we've got a lot of shared experiences. And that has lagged so much behind other countries. Absolutely. Too, who really have much more equitable provisions. Yeah. We're, um, we're playing catch up on the gender front a lot. That's right. And like there's that real chicken and egg scenario where people are like oh you know like men aren't as likely to take the provisions as women which is absolutely true but at the same time the more generous you make the provisions the easier it is for more men to take it up and we start to see you know like policy can lead cultural change in this space and I wouldn't be mm. surprised to see that happen here. Now that's mm. something that we've been pushing for for a long time. And another yeah. ex example mm. is actually with the provisions that raise age care pay increases that will actually work in mm. um, reducing the gender pay gap and mm. that will again encourage families to be more, uh, people with children mm. to be more equitable be in mm. their division of labour about children as well. Mm. Absolutely. And, and while we're on uh, this subject of course there was the, there are the changes to JobSeeker and youth, allow youth allowance and related payments, um, perhaps the most controversial part of the budget of course the Economic Inclusion Committee had asked for an a significant and substantial increase across the board. Uh, the increase across the board was not substantial, it was uh, $40 a fortnight. Um, but still, obviously, uh, the first time it's been increased in the budget for a very, very long time. Uh, at the same time, we've seen that um, much heralded leaked change with the reduction in the age at which you can access an additional payment uh, once you've been out of the workforce for nine months from 60 to 55. Again, that will primarily benefit women who are caught in that uh, late 50s age bracket where they're a long way from accessing what meagre super they might have, even further away from accessing the age pension, but much less likely to get back into the jobs market, even in the tight labour market that we have now, because a lot of the jobs that are now available are simply things that are not, not accessible for a lot of those older people. Um, still a long way to go on, on repairing our broken welfare state. Let's, yeah. not, let's not mince words here. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of people suffering uh, and a lot of younger people in particular that, as our colleague John Falzon said last night, uh, we must ensure that we keep moving uh, forward in this space, that we keep improving not just the safety net but the entire infrastructure of how we support people who are out of work, uh, not only because we need to alleviate immediate pressures but because young people need hope that there is going to be a better future, that yeah. if they work hard they can build a good life and that the community's got their back. Mm. And that's the thing, I think we're, we're all hoping that this is kind of a launch pad budget from which the trajectory takes off and we see rolling improvements across the board. 
Um, it's, it's clear that you know Jim Chalmers had this balancing act to play, mm -hmm. and he wasn't going to please everybody um, or even most people necessarily. You know, there's, there's going to be sniping from the left and the right. Mm -hmm. um, but this kind of steady as you go approach, and they're building from this. I think that's what we're what we're seeing from him. Yeah, that's right. And that's what I think is so interesting about this budget. We're obviously, we're all policy wonks in this room. So yeah. we're obviously very concerned with the detail. We like to talk about like and taper the how. rates. And we like yeah, the how right, things are how. done. <laughs> but if we can like just switch the frame, I think the thing that's most interesting about this budget, even though we'll have specific policy recommendations and things that maybe we would have done differently if we were the ones in charge of the Treasury, but politically this budget is very interesting because it has sort of taken the wind out of the, the two opposing campaigns mm -hmm. that that will no doubt be try to be run at the next election where something like the job seeker payment is a really interesting one where you know the $40 a day sure we we probably all would have preferred maybe a little bit more um, was added to that $40 a fortnight $40 sorry $40 a fortnight $40 a day I think people would have been very interested yeah that's right my apologies $40 a fortnight which um all of a sudden it's not they can't say that there hasn't been a raise for 15 years mm. you know now the conversation is oh well that wasn't enough it wasn't quite right which is a much less effective campaign to run against the government and on the other side the um more conservative approach which would be oh you're throwing you know gasoline on the fire you're, mm. you're flooding the inflation with with more inflationary pressures they can't say that either mm. because it hasn't been this massive uptick mm. all at once so i think it's a very smart political and the, budget in that and it's space. important to note that the targeting has been deliberately done this way because a of the the cost of a huge rise but b the inflationary pressure that that would bring um look but it, that's not to say that um we don't want to see significant improvement uh to the way that we treat people that are marginalized in our economic system now i think the targeting of single parents and let's not forget there is about 55,000 single parents that will benefit from this, but over 100,000 kids, right? Mm. That's significant. And through um, time it's more. And through time it will grow, it will be more. Um, and there are you know, significant boosts for those older uh, job seekers that are trapped out of the labour market. So that's um, around 225,000 That's right, that's, a, that's a significant, no, it's actually yeah. the biggest single group of, of job seekers is those over 40, between 45 and 54. The second one is, is the over 55. I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's Commonwealth Rent Assistance, which this is, Matt, I'm going to get you to jump in here as our housing expert, but the, the Commonwealth Rent Assistance has gone up by 15%. Now, um, how homelessness advocates have been advocating for something closer to 50, but it is the first rise in the maximum rate in 30 years. Yeah, um, and I think uh, just to put it in, into perspective, so that's you know around $30 increase per fortnight on the maximum rate, which is around $185. Um, we know that rents are rising fast. We have, we have something approaching a rental crisis in the country. Mm. Um, it's interesting when you look at the data, so that the um, average rental increases in prices is around 5% as mm. of March this year in the CPI. Obviously, that is spread across people that are having no increase yeah. and those that are having enormous increases. So we've got like our colleague uh, here at Per Capita <laughs> had an 80% <laughs> rental increase um, yeah. sent to him uh, a couple of weeks ago. So we know that you know for, for someone that's having um, a no in rental increase at all, then this is a welcome increase. For uh, those that have had an 80% rental charge increase, then this one won't go nearly far enough to covering mm -hmm. that change. Um, so obviously, it doesn't cover everyone equally. Mm -hmm. um, and it only goes to people on, on very low and fixed incomes as well. It's not going to help you know, middle income earners in the private rental market right now. 
Well, that's right, yeah. It's it's very much targeted towards the, the people at the bottom but of the But again, income. less likely to be inflationary that way. Exactly. And, um, you know, and from what I've seen of the research, you know, um, increasing Commonwealth rent assistance. Okay, let's take a step back, actually. So so Commonwealth rent assistance, you know, it's um, it, from our perspective in per capita, it's not the ideal solution. You know, we don't love it as a long-term policy. It's not a long-term <laughs> solution, you know, and we've seen it creep up from, you know, when it first came in, it was around a billion dollars, um, and now we're up, last year we're up to five billion, and now we're looking at uh, heading towards seven and a half billion dollars by the end of this forward estimate. So clearly we're spending a lot of money on this. Um, personally, I'd much rather see this money invested in um, social and affordable housing, um, but we can't just immediately stop CRA payments. And, no, and I mean, take up I think we're all we're all on the same page here. Long term CRA is something that throws a lot of public money at um, marginal improvements on affordability that ultimately goes to uh, landlords, whether mm. they're community housing landlords or private landlords. Yeah. But in a rental crisis, it's the fastest way to get money to households, right? Uh, and so as such, I think it's welcome right now. Yeah. Um, but longer term, Matt, we want to see big, bold investment in uh, housing construction, in housing affordability across the board. There yeah. were some, there were some uh, nods to that in this package, although most of Labor's housing policies were pre-budget, weren't they? Yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of the housing policies are already tied up in existing processes. So we've got the review of the National Housing and Homeless, Homelessness Agreement in August. Um, we are hoping that that will lead to something that is more akin to the old Commonwealth state housing agreements of old, where we actually saw a decent federal and state agreement on building um, decent publicly owned um, homes for those in need uh, and treating it more of as, uh, I suppose, more of a um, infrastructure investment rather than just um, you know, housing people that were seen as like part of the economy, something that was fundamental to improving the overall well-being and the economy of the country. Mm. Uh, so we've seen improvements in the bill to rent um, taxation treatment. Mm. So this is uh, the idea behind this is that we're trying to encourage more institutional investors to um, build and then long-term rent out apartments. Um, so this is what the super funds and the government are talking about in the in the housing accord. So um, what this does is sort of lay the foundations, mm. I think, for um, greater uptake of this scheme down the track. Um, we're hoping that we're going to see some more uh, improvements coming out of the housing accord and more investment in social and affordable housing from our super funds and other institutional investors. Yeah, yeah but housing really is shaping up as a point of contention uh, between the government and the Greens on the left. So. Uh, there's going to be, I think, quite a lot of politics being played with an issue that should be, in my view, um, well beyond politics. Housing is a pretty fundamental human need, right? Well, the other thing about this budget, including housing, is that it will show up where the improvements need to be made or the corrections need to be made, because ordinary people will respond mm. to this budget. Some of them have been, will benefit quite a lot. And so they may realise that the political process will bring about, can be, can bring about improvements. Mm. Um, and therefore it is worth taking action on that front mm. to favour whatever improvements they want. In other words, it's revealing a democratic process. It so is. we can hope for that with housing too. 
And it's great that we've got a government, right, that wants to talk about housing, that wants to invest in housing and that recognises, unlike previous governments, uh, that it's not just a state and territory responsibility, it's a national challenge and the government, the federal government is the government with the purse strings. Um, Anthony Albanese's been pretty committed to action on public housing since I first asked him about it at a per capita event in late 2019. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, and the, we are now seeing some of those policies roll through, but the Centre for equitable housing, Matt and Lucy and Marg and the team here uh, will continue to uh, develop what we think are going to be the best policies for reversing uh, the financialisation of the housing market here in Australia and returning housing to be what it should be, which is a home for people mm. uh, on which they can build a life. So work to be done in that space too. Um, we're running out of time, but I want to come back to you, Cheryl, um, in the uh, last bit of our discussion um, around some of those other industry investments, particularly hydrogen. What's happening in that yeah, space? Yeah, so there's $2 billion that they've set aside for um, funding hydrogen. There's been really big um, claims made in this space, particularly around uh, Gladstone. They're really trying to set upper hub um, and it's really going to help kickstart some more of the renewable manufacturing that we know we need to see in the country um, but it's really exciting to see how all of these things interact together so we're seeing targeted investments and targeted loans being made to different industries um, you know across renewables pharmaceuticals medical manufacturing all things that we've been calling for for a long time this is going to interact really well with um, the way that they are investing in the transmission so there's another 20 billion dollars which is being being set aside for um, the grid, which isn't as sexy a part of the <laughs> renewable story. Like everyone loves to talk about, like, oh yeah, we can go and stand in front of a wind farm. We can go and stand in front of a solar. None of it will uh, work unless we upgrade the grid. But that's right. And our grid is so behind the times. It is so out of date. It is so hard to work on for a lot of the workers. That it's are. an area where Australia really still suffers from mm. the tyranny of distance. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's a recognition by this government that we need to address that and address it in a way that considers renewable. Mm. Uh, approaches as well. Absolutely. And like you say, Shell, it's not nearly as sexy or as cut through as standing up and saying no new coal and gas, right? Yeah, that's right. But it's the work that needs to be done. Absolutely. Uh, and they haven't gone half way on it. You know, mm. they're committing serious money there, there, and they're thinking about how it interacts across the electricity supply chain, so how that feeds into our new lithium batteries. And in fact, the, any improvement to the grid also readdresses the need for batteries yes. and so the Absolutely. need for battery advance is actually minimized by improving the qualities of the grid we may as well take advantage of having different time zones in this big country mm -hmm. to actually give us mm -hmm. to reduce the need for batteries we get that through a grid that's a very clever absolutely, absolutely. It is. and combined with the investment in community batteries and the uh, support for electric vehicles that's we can right. see really some important policy work being done here mm -hmm. the ground being laid for the necessary shifts that we've avoided investing in now for nearly 20 years that's right absolutely at the center for new industry we are absolutely charged. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> this is a great budget for us. Cheryl's very happy. Yeah. I think one thing that's really interesting in this budget is just how um, something that we've been advocating for for a long time is a full employment approach. Yeah. And what we've seen is the tax receipts that have led to this surplus. You know, a lot of the reason we have a surplus now is because of the higher income tax receipts Absolutely. that have come out of um, essentially full employment that we've not mm. seen in the, in the country for, for mm. decades. Um, just to put it in perspective, you know, the, uh, last, the most recent uh, data point we have is something like uh, 560,000 people were unemployed 
um, last year, and then the, the prior to the pandemic, the average was around 700,000 mm. people unemployed. Mm. So what we can see here is that our approach to full employment, you know, you get people into their jobs, you get people working, and yeah. suddenly you have budget repair happening by itself. Precisely. And that's something we want to see as, uh, as things roll on. Great yeah. point, Matt, and that's why we framed our policy uh, approach over the last five years very much around that post-war reconstruction framework that rebuilt our economy after the Second World War through exactly that, a full employment approach. Really important to note, though, that while we do technically have full employment, which we, Matt and John Quiggan and I, uh, in our submission to the employment white paper, um, you know, full employment in our view is where there are roughly the same number of people unemployed as there are vacancies in the labour market, and we're there right mm. now. We're there yeah. um, more through chance and 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 fortune and some good government policy over the last uh, few months, um, and the outcome of the pandemic. But it's critical that we recommit to maintaining that, Absolutely. while recognising that if there is. Uh, as Ken Henry has said, if there remain so many people on unemployment support during effectively full employment, then those people clearly need more help than we're giving them. And that's why we're engaging so closely with the inquiry into Workforce Australia um, and looking at what we can do to really fix a system that is completely broken and has become completely punitive and isn't helping those people that have challenges of getting into the labour market get what they need to, to get back to work and doesn't adequately recognise that a big proportion of people currently on JobSeeker actually have a limited capacity to work anyway and should probably be on DSP or something like mm. the old sickness benefit. And there are, there's also, we need to remember that there's also a fair proportion that are underemployed mm. and would like to work more. So that suggests a misfit. So anything in this budget that's promoted training, which the TAFE part has, mm -hmm. Um, is will also fix some of that underemployment that's mm. in there as well, and all of that will promote productivity in Australia and Australia's growth. So in that sense, it's a growth budget. It is, and it's a it's a long term. It's a it's a good short term response to the pressures we're under. You know, soaring inflation, real cost of living crisis, um, recovering from the pandemic, also years of neglect of the social infrastructure in our country and of the you know industrial infrastructure that's needed to grow. Um, it's a very, very good start, in my view, um, but there are still things that need to be done um, and we'll be continuing to engage in the policy process around those things. Before we wind up, I want to give a particular shout out um, to Senator Katie Gallagher and her team um, in, in the Office for Women. Uh, this has been the best budget for women in a very, very long time, uh, as well as all of those measures around Parents Next and uh, increasing parenting payments, supporting older women uh, who are out of the labour market. Um, there's been another additional funding of almost 600 million on top of the 1.7 billion into women's safety, into the National Plan to End Violence Against Women and Children, uh, and into supporting um, women and children from getting out of very dangerous situations. This is all, of course, linked to the welfare changes and to the um, the Housing uh, Housing Australia Future Fund, which they're trying to get through the Senate, which would have a, a specific proportion of properties for people fleeing domestic and family violence. Um, but it's no small thing to have, as the Minister for Women, the Minister for Finance, uh, because it means that this gender lens is being applied at the very centre of the budget process. And as a long-standing advocate for that, that makes me very happy indeed. Um, look, we're going to leave it there. There's so much more we could talk about. And on future episodes, we'll probably get into some of these more meaty policy issues in detail. Um, we will continue to advocate for a fairer Australia, for an Australia that leaves no one behind, um, and particularly 
I think around housing and around uh, education um, and employment opportunities, things that will restore the social mobility promise of Australia for younger generations uh, and ensure that we um, recreate a country that is fairer, that is more equitable uh, and that promises a good future for all of us. So if you're further interested in the budget, um, we are having our annual uh, now, it's, was, it's become more than annual because there have been a lot of budgets lately, <laughs> it's been two a year for the last couple of years, we're exhausted, um, but our regular federal budget analysis webinar with our friends at the Chifley Research Centre, the McKell Institute and the John Curtin Research Centre, that's coming up on Friday the 12th of May at 1pm, it's free, it's online, you can get uh, tickets at humanitics.com and our special guest is Dr Andrew Lee, the uh, shadow, the not, no longer shadow, thank God. The Assistant Minister. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Andrew. The Assistant Minister for Treasury and Finance and one of the best economic brains, not only in the government but in the country. So we're looking forward to that conversation too. So join us next time on Recap. Uh, thank you for joining us today. And we will see you or hear you next time when we continue to examine inequality and work together towards a fairer Australia. This show is a production of Per Capita, the independent progressive think tank dedicated to fighting inequality in Australia. And we're committed to providing ad-free and editorially independent content too. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present.